this is medium.com recovering from religion is the one who is being featured in this article this is march 1st 2021 of the publication date from last year this is about educating monotheists to their polytheist beliefs there are no monotheistic religions this is by daryl w ray ed who's the author this is circa 2000 and let us begin but before I do I'm going to make sure I pronounce this particular word correctly because I'm learning sometimes I have a hard time doing that with certain words There we go. Niche. There we go. Again. <laughs> in everyday life, we non-theists may find ourselves in discussions with theists. Have you noticed that these discussions often go around in circles and achieve nothing? Why is that? Let me suggest that one reason is because we're using their framework in which to discuss and argue. In this article, I'll explore some practical ways to stay out of their framework. Who says they have the sole S-O-L-E right to define the terms of engagement? For this discussion, we'll focus on monotheists, but the other areas might be just as interesting. Many modern-day theists seem to consider the so-called monotheistic nature of their religions as a sign of legitimacy, at least when compared to other openly polytheistic religions. The gods of ancient Greece and Rome were many, each with their own unique powers and niches, in the nether world. It is no problem to see these as polytheistic religions, but interestingly, it is almost as easy to identify so-called monotheistic religions as polytheistic. If we expose the propaganda of these religions by challenging this key concept, we shift the frame and open the door for a different kind of discussion. We don't have to acquiesce to their definitions of their invisible friends. Let's explore. To be a monotheistic religion, a religion must have only one god in its lexicon. Zeus may have been the highest and most powerful god in the Greek pantheon, but he was certainly joined by many other lesser gods. In Christian mythology, the gods are no less than four, sometimes more. The Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and Satan are certainly gods. So whatever the Christian apologist wants, to say these four certainly function as much like individual gods as any Greek gods. The Yahweh figure may be more powerful than the Son, Satan, or Holy Ghost, but so too was Zeus or Thor. All move in mysterious ways, and while three are allied against one, so too were their alliances among Greek and Norse gods. In addition, Catholics have Mary who seems to have special powers and access to the other gods in remarkable ways. Then we have all the saints of both Catholic and Orthodox traditions. How convenient that each of them seems to have special powers, not unlike the demigods and lesser gods of other polytheistic religions. In Christianity, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1 shows a clear duality. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The author takes great pains to convince us that his two gods are really one, but the argument falls short. 
two gods are just that, two gods. No amount of hocus pocus can make them one. Yet there has been the party line in Christianity for 1,700 years. Again, no amount of hocus pocus can make them one. Yet there has been the party line in Christianity for 1,700 years. Why 1,700 years? Because the issue was quite controversial in the church for the first 200 to 300 years. Perfectly legitimate Christian writers had strongly differing views on the nature of their Christ. Was he a God or not? Was he made a God or if he was first human? Was he always a God? These concerns had real consequences for how one went about understanding the crazy ideas being perpetuated at the time. If Jesus was a God all along, then he really could not suffer and die in the way of a true human. If he was truly human, then he was made a God upon his death. He suffered like a human and because he became a God, his followers can become gods when they die. We may scoff at these ideas now, but while that particular idea was slapped down in the third century, it has been resurrected many times in history, most recently in Mormonism. Islam and Judaism. What about Islam and his claim to be monotheistic? Muhammad strongly criticized Christianity because he claimed to have three gods, but he only improved by a small margin. Islam has no less than two gods, Allah and Satan, or as they call him, Shaitan. Both are quite powerful and vibe the souls of humans. How much more godlike can you get? In Shia Islam, there is an additional pantheon of gods or demigods in the form of fallen martyrs or saints. Basically, what they're saying is in the world of religion, there is a plethora of deities and Christ figures. Believers flock, believers flock to the various shrines of Fatima and Imam Hussein in hopes of getting a blessing or protection. The 12th Imam's predicted messianic return sure makes him look like a god or demigod. Finally, we come to Judaism. This may seem to be a monotheistic religion, but only if there is no acknowledgement of a Satan or the evil one, and what do we do with the coming Messiah? Jewish scholars like to say that Satan is really just a representation of the evil side of humanity. But in the book of Job, he seems to have a lot of power independent of Yahweh. In Genesis, the tempter seems to do things a Greek god might do when he tempts Eve. As for the Messiah, the Jews believe this godlike creature is yet to come. Whoever the Messiah is, he'll be godlike or have godlike powers. The Jewish scriptures' claims about the Messiah certainly sound godlike and therefore make Judaism a religion of two or three gods. Simply because a religion says it is monotheistic does not make it so. Whether Christian, Islamic, or Judaic, the pantheon of gods looks remarkably similar to that of the, of the Greeks. Imaginary beings have relationships with one another and with humans. Over time, these imaginary beings take on more or less power in the pantheon. The Jesus God is in ascendance right now among Protestant fundamentalists. The Holy Ghost God is most influential in the Pentecostal movement. The Yahweh God is top of the Jehovah Witnesses pantheon, and Mary is high on the food chain for Catholics. 
Satan has a lot of sway in some Islamic sects, as he ETS, and Christian fundamentalists. Just because a religion has a well-oiled propaganda machine claiming they're invisible beings, have certain relationships and power, doesn't mean we have to buy into it. In fact, I think it is imperative that we non-theists openly redefine God definitions. After all, Christians couldn't decide for a couple hundred years on the nature of their gods, and some are still debating the nature of various invisible friends and invisible enemies. Use the language of polytheism. To avoid stepping into the thesis paradigm, here are some practical ways to use language. When talking with a Christian religionist, refer to the God Jesus or the God Satan. As you talk, do not use their hocus-pocus sleight-of-hand language. They believe and act as if they have multiple gods, so talk to them in that way. That's the wonderful effect of getting you out of their paradigm and challenging them in theirs. Language is powerful. Use it to forge a new reality, one that is independent of monotheistic mythology. Why should they be allowed to set the terms of religious discussion? For example, we might ask, for example, we might ask, I say again, how does your God Jesus talk to you? How does your God Satan talk to you? How do you tell the difference? If your God Holy Spirit moves someone to dance and talk in tongues, why don't the Presbyterians and Episcopalians enjoy the be that benefit? What makes the Pentecostals the main ones to enjoy tongue talking? Let me react to those questions. How does your God Jesus talk to you? How does your God Satan talk to you? How do you tell the difference? If your God Holy Spirit moves someone to dance and talk in tongues, why don't the Presbyterians and, and Episcopalians enjoy that benefit? What makes the Pentecostals the main ones to enjoy tongue talking? If your God commands women to keep quiet in church, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 through 35, how is it that there are so many women preaching in the evangelical movement? What if the God Holy Spirit commands a woman to speak in church? Could it really be the God Satan talking to her to get her to violate the silence commandment? When does the God Holy Spirit talk to you or how does it act in the world? Where does God do its thing? How is Where does the God Holy Spirit do the God Holy Spirit's thing? How is the God, Holy Spirit, different than the God, Jesus. They seem to do different things. How do you know if it is your God, Jesus, talking to you, or the God, Holy Spirit, or maybe the God, Satan? If you can't tell the difference, then why have two or three? If you can tell the difference, then can you explain how? The believer may often respond that you are uneducated in the doctrine of the church. They would be wrong. You are well acquainted with church dogma and, do and church doctrine. But since you are not captive to that tradition, you don't need to use that language. You are free to call a spade a spade. The believer may try and educate you with their double speak and church propaganda. Keep to the new language, even as they try to bring you back to their frame. The polytheistic frame is a powerful tool for challenging their mythology in entirely new ways. Most religionists are quite unsophisticated in the ancient arguments and struggles that result in today's dogma. 
what they know is what the church taught them. They have no idea that today's dogma is based on a fantasy framework concocted by four centuries of argument and fighting and political intrigue and political fatigue. The church may, for some of the people in it, may try to have themselves speak to you in mob speak, mob speak, when they are infuriated with you. If you challenge their highly prized belief system. Keep your cool. Do not argue or get into a heated debate. Just ask them to explain. Highly charged emotional arguments do two things. They close off true discussion and create defensiveness in the other person. There's always a discussion that goes nowhere. Their religion has conditioned them to get defensive when questioned. The defensive response keeps them safely inside their linguistic framework. The less defensive and confrontational you are, the greater the chance of some interesting discussion and potential influence. Approach the subject as if you were talking to an ancient Greek about their pantheon. As they try to explain from their frame, respond with your frame. For example, them. You don't understand. God sent its only begotten son to earth to show us how to live. Now let me, since they're patriarch, since they are the, since they are of the patriarchy and they're patriarchal, here how we go. They'll say, you don't understand. God sent his only begotten son to earth to show us how to live. You. So your father God has a son God, just like Heracles was the son of Zeus. Notice, Zeus, Jesus, their, their name's Ron. The God's name is Ron, mythologically speaking. And the son God lived on earth like Heracles. Then, no, Jesus is not like any Greek God. He is God but became a human. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If he is a son, then he is not your father God any more than you are the same as your father. And how does your Holy Spirit, God, figure into all this? He is never mentioned in your Old Testament, but suddenly shows up in the pantheon about the time your Jesus, God's God, appears. Looks like Jesus just made up another God for you Christians to deal with. If you define the terms to stick with them, it makes the discussion much more interesting and difficult for them to hide behind doctrine. It slows the process down in a way that may bring about more considered and thoughtful argument. They may not change their view, but they will know that you don't play the game on their turf. They also learn that you are not bound by their doctrines, which can be very difficult to explain in the light of simple reason. A side benefit comes when they hear questions they have never considered. They may be inclined to think about their own gods in a slightly different way or an entirely different way. That's up in the end. Because most religionists live comfortably with a common framework, they rarely have a challenge. Even when Muslims, Jews, and Christians engage in discussion, they do not challenge one another's basic paradigms. Only someone totally outside of the religious framework can effectively illuminate the linguistic prison all religionists inhabit. The next time you're in a discussion with a theist, Try using language that keeps you out of their paradigm and encourages consideration of the pantheon of gods that inhabit their make-believe world. The result may challenge them will give you 
complete freedom of movement around the mythological world. I do want to say that I found this to be another reason why I left religion in all houses of worship. Um, Because it reminded me of the fact that The Tryon Tryon God concept was not created by Jesus. It was created by Constantine and his propagandists. And so that was what really um, made me think differently. about it all, for real, and that's why I can honestly say that, no pun intended, I am truly recovering from religion. I'm recovering from legalism, recovering from the lawlessness that I was taught by religion. Um, I'm recovering from Judaized Christianity because that's still going on today. And I'm recovering from conservative theology. I'm recovering from Pharisaism, churchianity, religious Christianity, situational religion, tribal religion, transactional religion, slave holding, religion, Jim Crow, Christianity. Christian nationalism, Dominion theology, white Christian nationalism. supremacist religion, the myth of America being a Christian nation, as well as Religiosity and piety. I'm recovering from the myth of biblical inerrancy, the myth of biblical infallibility, the, the myth of biblical literalism. Religious rightism. I 
evangelical movement and fundamentalist movement. These are all the things I'm recovering from. So um, I, I can honestly say in closing for people to hear my heart y'all know who I am I am a free thinker I'm a humanist I'm a skeptic And I am a secularist, that's for sure. Because I live a life of secularism. I love the life of secularity, secularness, and the secular that I do live. I live a life of ear religion. I live a life of secular humanism. I live a life of naturalism. And so... That is something that I am truly proud of myself for being. That being said, peace the fuck out. I did a hell of a goddamn good job of explaining all of my views on religion. My ass is happy that I did the goddamn shit. <laughs>